Welcome to Rocketman Explores, where we voyage forth and delve into the world of sci-fi. But wait a minute! Ever wondered when the internet is going to get tired of us and just come and kill us all? Well, so have I. But then again, maybe it'll just be happy and send us cats for the rest of our lives. Tune in as we figure out AI. Friend, foe, or disinterested god. Much like cats. Hello again, ladies, gentlemen, and everything in between, and welcome to another episode of Rocketman Explorers. I hope you guys are all doing well. I hope at least some of you have thrown yourself together a daisy that Chris very kindly walked us through last week. I know I have, because again, it's a fantastic drink. Today, we're talking about a granddaddy, an OG, if you will, of the uh, science fiction film genre, um, a true classic, although not considered at the time, and a true classic, but one of the weirder classics you're going to ever get into. We're going to be talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey, and joining me to discuss it is a, a very good old friend of mine, Carolina. Carolina, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Hanging in there. Yeah, yeah, surviving. Yeah. Surviving, uh, like everyone else, I think. Yeah. And Carol, you at least are tangentially connected to space in some way, because who you work for... I work at the Miguel Space Institute. So there it's like our, a research center that like we do a lot of astrophysics and other kinds of planetary science. So I'm not an astrophysicist, but I do work with a lot of them. Excellent. That's great. There you go. Tangentially connected to space, but I'll take it. Tangentially, I mean, more more tangentially, we're all technically tangentially connected space since it's just right up there, but Caro is more so than most of us. Yeah, I like that. 2001. Now, you had not seen 2001, had you? I had not. It had been on my to-watch list forever, uh, and I just never got around to it. Like, to the point where I owned it on DVD, and I had just never watched it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's... <laughs> um, so... So before, mainly because of the theme of this season, I obviously I want to talk about HAL 9000, but 2001 is such a monolith in uh, science fiction culture that I, I, would, I just want to get in a bit, especially since it's your first time seeing it. So like, what did you think of 2001? It's a lot. Um, there, there's yeah. a lot there to unpack. And I think I had been warned that the movie starts off a bit slow. Yeah. But I wasn't really sure what like what I was getting into. I mean, you, know, you start with those scenes on like the prairie, like, and there's all these monkeys, and it's like, oh, okay, um, this went way back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, real slow, couple million years slow. But it's interesting because like I think because it's as you're saying, it's like it's such a big part of like, or it, it influenced so much of science fiction going forward. Like I think I'd seen parts of it, right? Like there were things that I had seen in like either in like documentaries to do like about sci-fi or just. Almost certainly it's popped up somewhere before. Yeah. Even if not the visuals, the music, definitely. Oh, the music, absolutely. Like the music, I recognized it immediately. And I was like, oh yeah, right. This is why I know this. But also, I think I tangentially knew that the monoliths came from one of these movies, but I wasn't sure which one. And then like when it showed up, I think my notes would say, the monolith. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is where it's from. Okay. I find 2001 has permeated not as intensely, but it's permeated culture in the same way as, say, a lot of stuff from Star Wars, where even if you haven't seen it, you still seen some of it or you still know some of it. You know, at this point, it's so more subtly than Star Wars, obviously. But even if you haven't seen it, there's still going to be parts of it you'll see and go, oh, yeah, that's familiar. Like, I know this from somewhere. 
Yeah, that's exactly what it felt like. And actually, I was kind of surprised that because one of the things you hear about with the movie is obviously Hal, right? But Hal is not as big a part. He's really not in that much of the movie. No. Right? So I think there was an adjusting expectation thing. Everyone's like, oh, he's actually just in like half an hour of it. You know, the interesting part of it, I'd sort of forgotten there aren't any main characters in the movie because even the, the character that we end up following to the end, as you say, he's only in it for like 40 minutes. You know, it's 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 a very coming at it from modernized, especially coming at it from 20, like, you know, from now in modern movies. The pacing on this movie is bananas, like in terms of how slow I guess it goes. A lot of it. I mean, there's no dialogue for the first 28 minutes of the movie, like aside from monkeys yelling at each other. Yeah, that's true. Like and it's it's such a. It's interesting because like people say that it's like plotted very well, but it's it's kind of hard to like tease out that plot uh, at first because you don't really know where it's going. I think we're used to being told like what the point of a movie is. Yeah, very good point. The plot is almost always spelled out for us in the first like ten fifteen minutes of a movie, you know. And maybe there's like twist to it, but the basic outline is there. Whereas in this, I don't think you know the plot until the very end, and even then, it's sort of open to interpretation of what it actually is or what it means. Yeah, so I, I did, like, I'm a bit of a nerd, so I did a lot of reading afterwards. Caro's uh, somewhat under-exaggeration. She's a bit more than a bit of a nerd, but anyways. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was like, I just, like, read all these, like, think pieces about the movie. And and there's so much more there than just, like, what's on screen for those two and a half hours. And then there's the books and, like, all the story of, like, how the movie was made and everything that goes into it. So, like, there really yeah. is a, like, there's a lot of like, interpretation, I think, that's happened afterwards. What I didn't realize is that the movie is not based off the book. Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke worked on the movie and the book concur. And uh, like Arthur C. Clarke worked on the movie with Kubrick, but Kubrick also worked on the book with Arthur C. Clarke and they came out concurrently, which I didn't know. And I find that fascinating. And what's interesting, if you read the plot for the plot for the book of 2001, things are spelled out a little bit more. And, Kubrick sort of took a very sim, almost a very similar take he took he took to like The Shining later, where in the book a lot of things are explicitly spelled out. In the movie, is much more sort of vaguer implication. It's a lot of implication in this film that is a bit more straightforward in the novel, even though they were both developed at the same time. Yeah, and I think I, I read somewhere that like the script wasn't finished when they started filming. So like, yeah it wasn't the final draft. And so like there's stuff that only came up later or like that he took out at like a very late point of the game or, like, you mm-hmm. know, when he decided that, Oh, it shouldn't be about like nuclear weapons or, cause I think there was supposed to be a shot where like they showed like satellites around the earth where that were like meant to imply that it was going to be destroyed. And then yeah. he's like, Oh, like I'm not going to do that. Uh, because yeah. that yeah. wasn't we're the point of the movie. That. I was like, okay, that, that makes sense. So like it, it very much feels like something that was kind of being developed as they went along. And that's an interesting thing to do for something yeah. that must have been so expensive and so technically challenging. But I guess, again, the nature of how long the movie is, you know, I mean, you've got almost a sh- hour of shots in there that doesn't don't require any dialogue. So there's a lot of shooting you could do in that movie without needing almost any script at all. You need like storyboards of what's going to happen, etc. But you don't need this, you know, you don't need the script for the first half hour of the film. You just need the storyboard or like a lot of the or basically the last 20 minutes of the film or 30 minutes of the film as well. Like there, there's a lot there. That sort of you can just do by shooting. And 
of course, a lot of it, like a lot of the time must have been taken up because yeah, well, certainly the model work and such are dated now. They're his, how they filmed zero gravity back, you know, for 1969 was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. And like the shots of the, especially the interior shots of the ship going to Jupiter of him, his jogging, the whole jogging scene in the beginning are absolutely, it's still an incredible shot how they do all of that. Yeah, and it was so interesting, like, that the ship was shaped that way, that it was, like, it very much felt like it was curved. So I think we're now used to seeing, like, mostly, you know, shots in space stations where things are just meant to replicate life the way we're used to seeing it, right? It's just everything yeah. is laid out the way it would be in an apartment or an office building. So I, I, I really enjoyed the fact that it was very clear that it was circular. And it was... They were very leaning into the rotational gravity, but, like, in an extreme way, in a way that you really don't see that often or at all. On, I guess because you could never do that in a television show because it's just hilariously impractical. Like you're only able to do it in something like this when you have like a lunatic like Kubrick who's part of it. Yeah, and like you can also kind of tell in the scenes where like he's in the various shuttles like going places like that the like the I guess they're stu- they're meant to be like flight attendants. Um, the way they walk is completely different than how you would walk in like in you know in a plane. Yeah. Um, so I guess, as you're saying, they're trying to emulate like zero gravity. And, yeah, they're emulating it's a very physical zero, thing. Yeah, yeah, they're emulating zero g. They've got their like grip boots. He does a little zoom in on their those shoes, the grip shoes, and so they're gripping the ground, but they have no gravity bringing them down there. So yeah, it's a it's a whole trick, or like the trick where she walks, she goes in, and then she walks up the rotation upside down to except to go oh. back up into the cabin for the pilots and such. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's. It's a well-known sort of like tale that when this movie came, when this movie came out, it divided a lot of people. Obviously, a lot of people like it's slow and pretentious, and there is no plot. And I can see where you could come from for that, but it became extremely popular with the marijuana cigarette crowd for again obvious reasons. Like <laughs> you just show up super baked, just watch this bananas like visual feast going on, and be like, oh, okay, it doesn't matter if I understand what's going on or not. This is just some crazy shit to see, and it became very, very popular like that. Yeah, but I can totally imagine what it must have been like to just sit through this in a movie theater in the, like in the nineteen sixties and go like, what just happened? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What did I just watch? What was that? So yeah, all in all, your like summation of thoughts on the movie. I think I need to watch it again. Um, yeah. Like, I don't know. So maybe this is blasphemous to say, but I don't know that if I would watch the whole thing. Like, I feel like I'd start on the second chapter. No, that's fair. Once you um, know what happens with the monkeys, you don't uh, have to see that happen again. You know what happened. Yeah, there are like slight details that like, I didn't, I realized I had missed until I read about it. And I was like, oh yeah, like they did only learn to like do things after they saw the monolith. Like it's very subtle that like, that it was the monolith that kind of like led to the tools. Um, But no, overall, like, I think I need to watch it again just to kind of like get a bit more from it. But I like my favorite parts, as I think we're going to discuss just anything that like that Hal is in is wonderful. Yeah. And, And and I was kind of struck by how some of the technology seems like stuff that we, like that, that happened, right? So yeah, um, I just, I feel like I need to think about the movie a bit more and kind of like the implications of the end with like the star Bizarre. child. Yes. Um, 
I'm not, I wasn't sure what to call it at first. I was like, what, what is that? There, there's a fetus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just sort of staring at the earth. But its eyes are like wide open and it's terrifying. And apparently that means something as well. And I was like, okay. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I, I enjoyed the movie. And like, even if it's like, maybe not what we're used to seeing these days, like just being able to recognize how it has influenced everything else. And yeah. Like, and how it came, like how, so much of what we like see comes from this movie was really interesting like yeah. just like able to trace it back so i yeah i'm glad you made me watch this no problem no <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm with i'm with you 100 percent on that if if nothing else even if you're the kind of person who doesn't like slow movies or like movies like more existential movies nothing else as you say just watching it as an understanding of one of the baselines of everything that has come since it's worthwhile like this movie permeates into everything, into every all science fiction and just movies in general. After like, it's one of the really like foundational films out there. Like, if nothing else, just also from a visual effects perspective, like his their work with models and how their work with crazy camera shots and things like that. Like, was is yeah, fa- foundational. I think is the best way of putting it. Is absolutely foundational. But yeah. um, let's get into so. We're going to ignore the first two the the first two parts of the movie because they don't really have any relevance with this particular character, which is interesting. Like the introduction of character, uh, not all the characters for listeners. For those of you who haven't seen this film, and again, I strongly urge you to do so. The three main characters that we're going to be talking about are not intro- are not even introduced till a good hour and something into the film. There's a whole bit with apes at the dawn of time as you say carol pointed out it's subtle but essentially the apes encounter this monolith and shortly after that the apes that encountered it figure out how to use tools start using it to eat meat start using it to win fights over water and it's implied of course that they then go on to become the dominant tribe that then eventually goes on to become human beings we cut to many 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 years later well we cut to i guess 1999 or year 2000 and the americans have found so i'm not sure if the implication is that the cold war is over or not i think it might be because there are russian scientists on this moon base and they're all sort of very cordial with their american counterparts but the americans have found something on the moon they found another monolith much like the apes saw they uncover it the sun hits the monolith and it releases like this crazy radio signal. And then 18 months later where we join, uh, clearly an expedition has been sent to follow the radio signal and it went to Jupiter and we're on our way to Jupiter and going to Jupiter are five human beings, but three of them are in cryo sleep or their version of how they describe as cryo sleep. And then we've got two human beings. We've got Dave and unfortunately I always forget the other gentleman's name. And we have one computer we have hal 9000 and the three of them are sort of caretaking the ship and they're on their way to jupiter that's where sort of the the relevant part of this film opens up for us is with the three of them on their way to jupiter and yeah you're right that is some fun things about technology like very quickly early on we open up i guess a little bit before but essentially they've got zoom yeah <laughs> they, they, they you know again yeah watching in the pandemic was even more prescient but instead of telephones they use zoom pretty much yeah i guess like he's using the receiver right i mean like i think there was a phone headset in his hand in like in the second part but but when they're on the ship to jupiter like it's just a screen right like yeah it's it's recording but it and it's recording because of the because of the light delay 
like any any interaction they they do an interview with the television studio uh, with a television anchor uh, but they they make it clear that it's every answer and response is like a 14 minute delay between because it's a seven minute light delay to reach earth but yeah they're just they're using zoom it's all it's all zoom it's all via zoom which is hilarious you know why not just keep using zoom they're they're eating like their meals like yep. while essentially watching something on their ipads yeah because like yeah. they both have like tablets and they're just like watching the news while they eat and i was like yeah i think that's how we all do it now yeah they're pretty much they're they're isolated they're in a bubble with themselves you know they're just eating yeah they're eating on their things watching zoom essentially working remotely there's no one else even close to them yeah they are living the 2020 2021 lifestyle right now on their ship like that's just what they're doing yeah, it really it hit pretty close to home. <laughs> yeah, I guess you know what it means. We're all going to be much more psychologically prepared for long distance space travel. That was a, that's always been a concern. People's concern about space travel is how long you're sort of isolated and what you would have to do this that, and the other. So, you know, in a sense, we've for the last year and a half, we've all been training for long distance space travel without even realizing it. Yeah, that's a good point. I never really thought about it that way. But yeah, I think now we're we're used to just like having a much smaller circle of connections. Yeah. Um, and you know, dealing with technological difficulties in order to be able to communicate with anyone else. And like you just kind of like adapt. It's like, oh, there's a seven minute delay, there's a seven minute delay. Okay, fine. Like, yeah. And and life just becomes smaller, but they still seemed fine. So like that's the thing. Like psychologically they seemed okay. Yeah. They're fine. They're, you know, I mean, there are guys on them. They're, they're guys with a job to do, you know, they're there, they're, they're there for a purpose. So that I'm sure helps, but you're also right that, yeah, they're just, you know, they're getting their, their messages from their families. They're doing their, they're doing their like long distance, light delay television interviews. They're just doing their thing. They're playing chess. They're doing, they're doing drawings. And so here's where we introduce because curiously, so we're introduced to HAL 9000 by, the television interviewer because he speaks about the fact that for that this is another sort of he doesn't call him a crew member but the two gentlemen on the ship do is he says you know the ship has included the latest in computer technologies the how not or the i'm trying to remember what the acronym is but for all intents they call him how is the how 9000 series of computer and the television interviewer then begins to interview how because he has personality he has emotions he's been well emotions difficult but he has personality he's been programmed with personality to make him easier to interact with for the two gentlemen who are part of the mission and just humans in general and the television interviewer begins to speak to him and he asks him about working with his other two crew members and how says everything right he's like you know i enjoy it very much we have a stimulating working relationship ask him about his feeling of responsibility for being essentially the one in charge of the mission and how correctly states, you know, he enjoys the responsibility. It keeps him occupied. It's something that keeps his mind occupied because he's obviously much quicker mind than anything. And he, he gives all the right answers to the television interviewer. He comes off, he comes across as a person. That's exactly what it comes. And when yeah. the other two were asked about him, they also refer to him. He's the sixth crew member. He is a person. He's a member of the crew. He's who we interact with. He's who we deal with on a daily basis. And what follows that is two shots. Um, of one of them playing chess against Hal and the other dude 
um, sketching, doing various sketches of the ship and showing them to Hal and Hal telling, telling him how much he thinks he's improved. And, and yeah, the two gentlemen always seem to treat him as a person. They're always interacting with him as they would any other member of the crew really. And Hal acts accordingly. So he's very much, as far as I can tell, he is an artificial intelligence. He's not like a semi-intelligence. He is very much a full, like functioning cognitive intelligence with his own feelings, his own opinions, his own viewpoint on things. Like, would you, would, do, do you concur with that? Yeah, I think that he absolutely seems to have a personality. And I think they refer to him as like a general artificial intelligence. So like he, it seems like he can learn everything and he learn he learns how to interact with people um i think the interesting thing is like in this idea of like is hal a person is that they call him he all the time like there is yes. no there's no point at which it's like it or like the machine right it's like hal is like is um is male in a way it's like is a male person yes um which is also kind of an interesting thing i think maybe we're used to it now like we're more used to like a different set of like AIs now but like it, it was interesting to see that like in the voice of a man right I feel like if that movie were made today it would be very likely for like hell to be remade as a woman because like that's like we're used to our like artificial assistance being female now um, that and uh, I found it curious because in 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 many ways how is the ship and the naming of the, the convention of ships have always been that ships are female. So it was interesting that although Hal in a very real sense is the ship, he's, he's not female, he's male, which you're right. That is an interesting point. And, I hadn't real. But I think it's also because as you were kind of saying, like he is meant to be a crew member, right? So he's like, he's not meant to be subservient to them. He's meant to run the whole thing. Yes. So in the attitudes of the time, it would have been really strange if that, position of like being in ultimate control over the mission which is like what we learn at the end had gone to something that sounded female like i don't yeah. think they, they would have imagined that like had it been a more like you know hal is our helper robot then i think that might have been gone that way so i think that there's something to be said about it would have been strange at the time for the dynamics of like of them being like equal crew members if they weren't also all gendered as male yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right that it's, you know, because everything in this, uh, there are the, the, the only sort of like, um, you know, all the stewardesses in the previous shots are all female, etc. The pilots are all male. Now, there is one point, again, in the previous part where a, a doctor runs into a bunch of his sort of like contemporaries from Russia and three of them are female. But I, I think you're right that it still would have been in the context of the 60s and in the context of what Hal was supposed to do, it would have been strange for them to make, or not strange, it would have seemed strange for them to make him female. But yeah, just the fact that they had to gender him, that they had to like humanize him was interesting, right? So like that they had to be someone you refer to as like another crew member, which is, it kind of, I guess, leads into what happens and why he reacts the way he does. Right? Yeah. Because so he, yeah, go for he, it. He's only human for as long as they need him to be, and when <laughs> when that's no longer convenient, then he's a machine and he can be de decommissioned. And yes, and I think it, that's what hurts his feelings. <laughs> well, okay, so this is going to be interesting. Uh, we dig down into why what happens happens. So 
to make a long story short, Hal has a conversation with Dave in which Hal brings up fears about the mission, specifically about some strange secrecy surrounding it, rumors about what's happening on Jupiter, and, like, you know, why were the other three members of the crew... It's sold to the television reporter that the three members of the crew are in stasis because it conserves resources, which makes sense. But Hal reveals that they were, in fact, brought on the ship in stasis. They weren't they didn't even walk on the ship themselves. They're brought onto the ship in stasis, which that is weird. There were rumors surrounding what happens and et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, Hal brings up worries about the mission to Dave and Dave. Dave doesn't really know how to answer that, but he dismisses them. And immediately once he dismisses them, Hal says there is a problem with the main communication array. It's going to fail in 72 hours. We need to go, you know, what do you want to do? So they decide to go out and, well, obviously they say we need to replace the part. They go out to replace the part. They bring it back to discover there's nothing wrong with the part at all. Hal says it must be human error. Uh, because he's confused. And as you say, they come, the two human members of the crew go somewhere where they don't think Hal can hear them, discuss what the options are because Hal has clearly made a mistake and he's not supposed to make a mistake. And they decide that then the only possible thing is to, is to, as you say, shut him off. So he's a crew member right up until he isn't. The second, even though they've been treating him as a person, this and the other, the second it seems as though he may have made an error. Now, I get their logic. It looks as though he's made an error and isn't aware of it. Considering that he's in charge of the whole ship, that's a huge problem. But their solution is to immediately cut off all of his higher brain functioning. Right. And they basically de- they, they take away the part of him that they had been interacting with this whole time, right? Like, they're okay with killing him, in a way. What's interesting is they don't see it as killing him. Right. They're turning him off. They can always turn him back on again. But Hal has never been turned off. One of them states it. He says, Hal's never been turned off. How do you think he's going to feel about it? And it turns out he doesn't take it well. Hal recommends swapping the parts back again to see if his postulation that the part is going to fail is correct. Right. They decide to go and do that. And while they're out there, Hal uh, murders, uh, <laughs> murders, murders, him, yes. murders one of the crew members. He clearly bumps him off, cuts his airline and bumps him off course. And yep. uh, when Dave goes out to rescue him, he kills the three scientists that are in cryosleep. And then when Dave gets back, he won't let him in. Uh, and he basically consigns him outside the ship to die. So, yeah, how's solution to not get Dave? Yeah, very telling. Dave asks, Dave keeps telling him to open the doors, open the pod bay doors, Hal. Hal said, and Hal eventually, great, I love this whole interaction with them. Hal goes, you know I can't do that, Dave. And Dave says, why? And he says, I think you, you and I both know very well, Dave. You were going to turn me off. You tried to kill me. Right. Uh, and Dave's like, well, how did you know you couldn't hear us? He's like, you went through a lot of trouble to conceal that from me, but I can read your lips, dumbass. Like, I know what you're saying, even when you're not. Which, now, I guess they couldn't have known. But when they got in the pod, the closed door wasn't facing Hal. If they just stayed that way, he never would have read their lips. But they rotated it specifically so they could see how, which, you know, in hindsight, very bad decision, gentlemen. But uh, I guess they just didn't they didn't foresee how extreme this reaction would be. I think they underestimated his intelligence. Right. Yes. Like they forgot that they thought that 
he was just a, like a camera with like a microphone and like that he could just hear them, but that he wouldn't try to find a way to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, like this is a machine that's been programmed to like to handle an entire ship's worth of decisions. Do they, did they really think that he wasn't able to solve that problem? Yeah. Like, yeah, I feel exactly. like, yeah, they, they, they didn't realize that his higher function allowed him to solve problems that way to like, to like kind of try to find his way around what was going on. Um, also they should have noticed that he, like, it seemed like he could see them from anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every um, shot, there's always a little HAL camera somewhere in the walls. He He's everywhere. And he's always listening, much in the way that, like, you know, Alexa is always listening now. And I think exactly. I might have just turned mine on. Yeah, obviously. and now she's probably, she's hearing you talk about another machine and she's very jealous. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's it's kind of, uh, they kind of know he's always there, but then seem to forget about it in the crucial mo- like in a crucial moment mm-hmm. right because well, they're like oh like because i guess they call out to him to see if he can hear them well they know he can't hear them yeah. but they don't realize he's learned how to read lips right but you're right i think that's the best way to describe it they underestimate how smart he is to them ultimately although they treat him as a crewmate and they they like they play chess together they talk to each other about the drawings and such he's still a machine they can turn on and off and he doesn't see it that way. Yeah, and so apparently, like, there's like a, a bit of a tell earlier on, which I only learned about when I read about that. So when Dave is playing chess with Hal, Hal cheats. Mm-hmm. Hal lies to him about like, because I, I guess he like basically says, "Oh, like these are this is the next series of moves, so it's going to be checkmate." It actually isn't. It's I think it's it would have just been like a mate, and he could have. Or it could it could have just been a check, and like I think he could have just prolonged that game. He didn't have to resign when he did, but he yep. trusted that Hal was telling him the truth. Yeah, because it like they didn't realize that the machine could like lead them astray. Could dissimulate, yeah. Could just yeah. yeah. And so basically, the Hal says you're not going to be able to get back in, Dave, because now we're going to get into a bit of like annoying space uh, safety issues. When Dave goes out to rescue his buddy, he doesn't bring his helmet with him. Yeah, why did he leave it behind? That, why did he leave no his sense. fucking helmet? And so he says, he's like, I'll have to get in through the emergency airlock. And Hal's like, you don't have your helmet, Dave. What do you think you're going to do? And Hal's right. He's like, what the fuck's wrong with you, Dave? I know you were in a rush, but grab your... If you... Putting on your spacesuit without your helmet is pointless. If you can't seal your suit, you may as well have not put the rest of the suit on at all. There's absolutely no reason to go out with your suit without your helmet. That's fucking bananas. Like, don't, you just don't do that. And that goes against all of their training. Like, they're. So you would to, think, right? Yeah. I mean, I know he's concerned about his friend, but like, Jesus, what a mistake to make. I definitely laughed out loud when Hal was like, You don't have your helmet, Dave. And I was like, Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you can almost hear Hal's like sort of satisfaction how Dave was there. It's like, yeah, what are you gonna do, Dave? Like you need to breathe air and you didn't bring your helmet, you fucking moron. Like And it is further proof that like, you know, I think it just proves to Hal that he is smarter than these creatures that he is supposed to be keeping alive. Yeah. Um and however, he... here's where Hal underestimates Dave. Right. Because Dave 
says, well, fuck it. You know, like I've only got a couple seconds, but if I explosively decompress the pot, I'm in facing the airlock, I'll just fire myself in there and that'll give me like super fast. And that'll give me enough time to like get to the controls and turn it off before I like essentially run out of air and decompress. And he does, that's how he does it. And then proceeds to go in and, uh, and puts on a helmet. Right. You know, smart. And the whole time you can hear this hissing, and I think it's implied that Hal has drained all the air out, is draining all the air out of the ship in an attempt to slow him down. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And, but Dave puts on a helmet, goes to Hal's control, and proceeds to shut him off. And you get this very, Hal's asking, you get this very sort of harrowing scene where Hal's asking him, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Please stop. And he keeps telling him, please stop, please stop. And then he says it. He's like, I'm afraid, you know, I can feel. And he says, I'm afraid several times. Then he says, I can feel my mind going. And then there clearly is a part where he sort of snap starts to lose it. He goes back to like his very first introduction to people. And he says, you know, can you hear, do you want to hear me? You know, my, my creator, what's his name? Taught me a song. Do you want to hear it? And Dave says, yes, I find this a fascinating little exchange. Dave says, yeah, how could you sing it to me? Again, Dave's been treating him. He's like a com- he's like a computer. He's not like a human. But then, in his last moments, Dave knows how afraid he is. Dress com- he tries to give him something to do to comfort him. He's like, "Yeah, Hal, sing me the song. Tell me what the song is." And Hal sings this song like Daisy, as he sl- and it gets slower and slower, and his voice becomes more and more warped. And then he's gone, and Hal's gone. And it's a very, it's a very interesting scene. Like yeah. Hal's sort of realization of his death. What did you think of it? Oh, that scene was heartbreaking. I was, yeah, it was so well executed. And I was, because you feel for Hal, right? Like he is, like he's getting lobotomized. He's getting, yeah. like maybe he will continue to live, but like not in the way that he has so far. So like they, they've essentially taken away the thing that made him special. Yes. And, and I think it is interesting that you point out that like, in that moment where like Hal kind of like reveals this vulnerability of saying, I'm scared. Like Dave sees him as human again, a little bit. Right. Like not enough to not kill him. Like, well, not enough to not kill him, but because I think he knows he has to, Hal's been trying to kill him. It's killed. He's Hal's killed everyone else in the crew. One way or another, Dave does have to take him down now, like just for his own survival. But he still, then he still sees him as human at that point. Yeah, it becomes a different thing there, right? Like, it's, he knows that he can't survive if he lets Hal live, but... Yeah. Yeah. But there's also, I think when you read about the movie, they talk about, like, Hal kind of, like, turning on everyone and, like, murdering them, as if it's, like, something that's drawn out. It happens within five minutes. It's it's very quick. It's not, it's not a long process. It happens very, very quickly. (laughs) But... So what happens when he shuts them down is what I think draws me. It's going to draw us on the discussion of why Hal does what he does. As soon as Hal's higher brain functioning is shut down, a recording, a mission briefing pops up, which says that it's the doctor that we saw in part two. And he's telling everyone the real reason for their trip, the alien, that there's another monolith out near Jupiter and why they're going out. And he says, the only one who's been aware of this up until this point has been your computer, HAL 9000. And so this, I feel, it puts everything into perspective. The only one who knew why they were going out there was HAL. HAL knew none of the rest of them did. Now, what this means, HAL had to lie 
it's it's assumed Hal had to lie to the to the two men about what they were doing, right? Like he had to, because he knew what was going on, but they didn't, which means he would have had to lie at some points about some things. And I think that's what got him is because he says his mission, his entire programming is to state information accurately and factually. Right. But he's also required to lie. And I think that's what breaks him. That's why at first he wants to shut down the communications. He says there's something wrong with it. And then later on he says, you know, put the fault back in it because we can afford, we can afford not to be in contact because if he's not in contact with them, then he doesn't have to, you know, he doesn't have to lie because the, the nature and why he's trying to get Dave to come to this realization himself. He's talking to him. It's like, don't you think there's weird stuff going on? Like if Dave knows then he doesn't have to lie anymore and he can sort of resolve that conflict in his programming. And then when they can't do that, then I think, you know, because he doesn't have to kill the ones that are sleeping. Like he's gotten rid of yeah. the guys who are going to turn him off. But I think again, it's, you know, you don't have to lie to them if he's still a machine. His thinking is quite like ours. You don't have to lie to the three guys that are asleep if they're already dead. Then there's no conflict in your programming. And that's, I think, what drives him. Now, it's also fear of being shut down. But I think a large part of what drives him is the, of what causes all these problems initially is the inherent conflict within him about his entire purpose is to show all information as factually and accurately as possible. And yet he can't do that to everyone who he's supposed to do that to. And for me, at least, I think that's what gets him. It's not a coincidence that that briefing and the mentioning Hal's the only one who knows happens as soon as Hal dies. That's why, that's what drove Hal to do what he did, I think, anyways. What, what, like, what did you take out of that? I think that is what it is. And I think it's clarified in the, uh, I think the book makes it a bit clearer from what I read, that like that that is exactly what triggers him, that he has the lie and he wasn't built for it. And it's a very human want the lying to end. Like, yes, he like he knew that he that, you know, maybe like killing them wasn't OK, but like he just needed a bit of like he needed to stop suffering. And yeah. he put himself first. Right. Which, again, is very human. Like he's like my need to not lie, <laughs> like my need to be trumps. able to talk to these people yeah. trumps their right to live. Which I guess yeah. also speaks to what Hal's understanding of human life is. Right? Well, like, he he, he approached know? it he approached it from a very machine point of view, which is like, how do you solve this problem? Use any way to solve this problem. Well, what solves the problem? I don't have to lie to them if none of them are there. That's that's a solve. That's a solve right there. There you go. You know. But so I guess like nowhere in his like there is no requirement that the that any of the astronauts be alive when they get to Jupiter then. Well, I don't like, know. I mean, that's tough to say. Pro probably there. Probably they didn't program that in because they didn't even think of it, right? I would imagine you know because this is all taking them by surprise. They clearly didn't have a single worry about the essential dichotomy of forcing the computer that has to tell the truth and tell everything accurately to lie because, you know, here we go. Let's throw some judginess around. They're the U S government. They lie all the fucking time They're they, they don't even think of it as a thing. It's just what they do. So like, of course they didn't think about that. Yeah, I guess so. But then like, why is that message there? Like there, well, there, there has to have been, yeah. It's stated it was, it's there for when they all wake up and they all arrive at Jupiter because obviously oh. they need to know at some point. Right. 
it, it says that you, if you're seeing this, you've arrived at your destination, Jupiter, oh, and true. you know now you're going to know the reasons why you were sent there. It's not a fucking survey mission of Jupiter. It's to find this artifact. But but we couldn't tell you before because we're the U.S. government. We keep everything secret. We couldn't tell anyone anything, right? Yeah, that's that's why the message is there because it was a briefing for when they arrived at Jupiter, so they could know what they were actually there to do. But so it's interesting because like they they programmed this machine to lie. But they didn't want to put the burden of that lie on those five humans because they could have, right? They could have briefed, I think, Dave and Frank. Is that the other one? Frank, yeah, I <laughs> um, think you're right. Yeah. Like, I think they could have briefed them and said, like, this is why we're going. There's no reason not to brief all of them except for the fundamental belief that everything has to be kept secret all the time. And I think history has definitely played out the fact that that is a fundamental thought in, like, you know, the United States government in particular, that, like, shit's often kept secret just because it's felt it must be. And this is the results of what happened in that particular instance. But, I mean, yeah, I guess. Like, I guess to a degree that, like, maybe they felt that, you know, it was a risk to have humans know because, like, that they would slip up at some point, right? Regardless but of maybe that it would training. It would it would break their minds. Well, in particular, yeah. the two that are going out there, that's an awful long way to like, that's an awful long journey to make knowing that's what's waiting for you at the end is like some kind of alien monolith with possibly like universe altering like implications behind it. Like that's a long trip and could easily fuck with your head. Yeah. So I, I guess like they, they didn't want to put that burden on them, but then they put the burden. On they put the burden Hal. on how, and, and like, he couldn't take it. No, because, like, Hal only knows what he knows, right? He knows that, like, they're going to go look for this monolith. They don't know what the monolith will do. Hal doesn't know if his humans are going to be okay. When, yeah. So so I think, like, cause Hal is also there to take care of them. Like, he, he's keeping them alive. He's keeping everything, like, functioning. And he doesn't know yeah. if what he's taking them to is something that's going to, like, hurt them in the end, right? So yeah. I think... I think what you were saying earlier when he's like, he's trying to get them to guess at it themselves is because like, he's worried <laughs> and yeah. he's concerned. Like, I think to a degree, I think Hal loves them. Yeah. And, and he didn't want to hurt them. Like he wanted to keep them safe. And like this, nope. this big thing that they don't know is yeah. potentially hurt them. Yeah. So, yeah. He only makes the decision to kill them after they decide to kill him first. You know, and then he's full self-sufficient. Up until that point, he's trying to mess with the communications to cut them off. He's trying to do various things to probably make them look more into it and find like this recording or what have you, or all sorts of stuff to see. I think you're right. Yeah, he's he's trying to push them towards that realization themselves. Yeah, and I, and I think it comes from like some concern that's been programmed into him, right? Because I think they did program him to care. Yeah. About these humans, so. It's just it's it's kind of cruel that they would do that too, and it, it, it goes yeah it goes back to like like this whole thing that we we want to create AI that can think and that can feel and that can carry a conversation, but then like you have to admit at some point that it becomes as complex as we are, and like I think Hal was experiencing anxiety at that point, yeah, right? in as much as like a machine can have a mental health condition, yeah, and. And I think you just kind of, you put all these burdens things like on the machine thinking that it will be able to, that it should be able to carry them because it is somehow both human and not human. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's he's a fascinating like sort of first take on AI in film, I find, because because the, the, the easy view and the view still a lot of people you talk about to it is, is that, oh, you know, he's a computer that goes murderous. And it's it's not that simple. He's not just the computer. He's not the Terminator. He's not just the computer out to kill us for the hell of it. There's a lot going on behind sort of the decision making and why he does what he does. He's a, he's a more nuanced take on it than just machine wants murder, you know? Yeah, it's very different because like the Terminator is just programmed to kill, right? And like yeah, Terminator that's what he doesn't does. have feelings. Like they they, no. they left the feelings out of his programming. Yeah. Because, like, they didn't need him for that. But, like, when we need them as, like, a way of providing, like, interaction or in a time where, like, you know, it's just Frank and Dave, like, it could be nice to have someone else there. So, like, you know, this is supposed to be. I just find that sort of the 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 takeaway for a, of a lot of the baseline knowledge of 2001 is that that Hal is the murderous computer, and like that's what people know about it. And he's more, you know, that was sort of the takeaway at the end, like you know, 50 odd years later. But there's more to him than that. So, yeah, everyone, listen, you should go and see this and take it out because yeah, you've probably all heard of Hal 9000 as like one of the first sort of like murderous robots of cinema, but there's definitely way more to him than that yeah i think like just boiling him down to murderous robot does him such a disservice because like that's also what i think i knew like i I was like oh like you know this ai goes rogue yeah but that's not really what happens right no like hal is often described in like write-ups of the movie as the main antagonist but he's not really he really isn't he's kind of like one of the main characters he's not evil like no i mean he makes makes decisions that damage and hurt the rest of the characters but but none of it comes out of left field he's just a tragic figure right like he yeah he yeah he 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 didn't want to die like he didn't want to die he didn't want to die and that that rendition of daisy haunts my dreams now yeah it's it's pretty intense um it's it's so scary (laughs) Um, and it's interesting because like if you think about what that song is about mm-hmm. right like it's interesting that that's the song that they taught that like that, yeah that the machine was taught it's like about like riding off into the future together with someone you love um it's i think it's yeah isn't it like bicycle build for two in the end something yeah exactly yeah, like that so it's like you know like it's a, diff- it's a, a it's difficult a love song. Yeah, it's a love song and a difficult concept for a machine to grasp, really. Yeah. And and I think like this final plea where it's just the two of them and he's kind of saying like, please don't kill please me. Please don't kill me. Yeah. And yeah. And, and you're right that I think at that point he's back to being a real person for Dave and Dave doesn't Dave doesn't want to kill him, but at this point now he also knows he has to like for himself. Yeah, and but then you also think about what that means for Dave, right? Because it means that now he is fully alone. Yeah, well, so let's get into the briefly because we're going over and we've talked a lot about how. But I want to get briefly get into the end of the movie where yeah, Dave makes it to Jupiter, and Dave flies out, and essentially there's a gigantic monolith in orbit of Jupiter, and Dave flies into it and has a schizoid psychedelic trip, but. What is Dave's mental state by the time he gets there? Because basically when all this shit happens with Hal, it's implied that there are about 50 million 
miles into their half a billion mile trip, which means he's only one tenth of the way into the trip. So how long, how long was he going flying by himself before he even got there? Like a long fucking time. And like, you know, first of all, there's what we all know now should be like how terrible isolation can feel. Um, And he's also dealing with the grief of having like all these, all his crew members are dead. Yeah. He killed Hal. Like he's probably processing a lot. So like by the time he gets, I, I think by the time he gets to Jupiter, it's kind of unclear how much of what's happening is just breaking him further. Yeah. But, but I also think he's, he's sort of, he's in the mindset of, you know, I'm here. Fuck it. Like, like, you know, he flies into this thing and God goes, God knows where. And, 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 you know, a certain rational part of mine would be like, why on earth would you do that? But I think that's probably part of it. After the trip he's had and the thing he's gone, he's like, you know, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to see what this is. I don't care. You know, it can take me, it cannot take me like we're doing it. You know, I'm past the point of giving a shit about that. And yeah, he goes on this intense 10, 12 minute, like just musical and basically visual sequence where he gets blasted off into who knows where. It's implied that it's very far. Like he like goes like, like there's all this kind of like terrain that he seems to be covering and like. Yeah, he goes thing. through space. He's 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 seeing what could be like galaxies and like basically the f- various fundamental parts of the universe. And yeah, he finally seems to like arrive at a planet, um, and probably arrives in a uh, in a fancy hotel room. Yeah. Um, so that scene kind of reminded me of that Doctor Who episode, um, the girl in the fireplace, because there's like is that, that yes. juxtaposition, yeah, there's like that juxtaposition of the like really ornate like kind of like palace-y room and then like the spaceship. Yeah. I mean, I, I know well, the, the stories are very different, but I was like, oh yeah, like that that brought me back. I was like. I wonder if this was inspired at all by that. Well, it to me, it it reminded me of at least the idea of it of why he ends up somewhere like that was the was. Do you remember that movie Contact with Jodie Foster? Yeah. And they build this whole wormhole thing, then she falls through it, and like she sees her father, and it's somewhere recognizable. It turns out it happens all in her mind. But the point is, is that she's like, "Why is it all like this?" And he's like, "And the for father who's like possibly alien is like, you know, we needed something that your frame of reference could understand." And I think that's what this hotel room is, is it's to a certain extent, something that Dave's frame of reference can understand. He arrives there and it's something that his human mind, especially after the psychedelic freak out that he just experienced getting there can at least somewhat accept. But then it just gets really weird because he walks in, there's nobody there. And then he turns around, he sees an old part of a version of himself eating and then he seems to disappear. We follow the old version of himself, gets up, looks around for him. He's not there, sits back down. Then he hears an even older version of himself in the bed. He disappears. And then the old version takes a look and the monolith is in the middle. I'm sorry I'm rushing right. through this, guys. But the old version sees monolith in the bed. And then old version basically seems to become like a zygote which again then gets catapulted back to earth and becomes a fetus. The last shot is of a human fetus with wide open eyes floating outside of earth, staring at it. And I think it's implied that's Dave. Dave has now become this. So like, yeah, make of that what you will. Uh, yeah. What is his purpose? What is, is he threatening earth? Is he going to like, it's unclear. All of it is unclear. I don't know what's yeah. happening. Is he like, what is happened he to him to... is unclear. Did he live his whole life or was it just like taking various frames of reference in his life and inserting them into the, like, I'm not sure what happened to him at all. 
I think there are some interpretations where like he is now meant to be like the next step of evolution since like that's what the monolith kind of triggers in humans to like yeah it may yeah i get that well you know like like the however many millions of years ago with the apes and it triggers the first step and now he's the next step that makes a lot of sense i don't know why he gets sent back to earth like i'm not really sure like is humanity's next like chapter on the earth necessarily it i don't know it, yeah. it feels it, it feels like a weird thing to come back to when yeah it's, this, it's yeah Essentially, because our primary focus is how I'm, I'm not going to try and get it because we'll take another hour and a half to get through the implications of this movie. What I will say is, listeners, watch it and yeah, send us in, send us your comments of what you think the ending means because it's uh, it's a mind fuck is what it is. The ending is very much a mind fuck, but check it out. Let us know what you think because yeah, I I, I do, I'm not going to. We don't have the time to summarize that because that'll take forever. <laughs> I think the takeaway is that Hal is the best character. Yes, and we correct. All love Hal. correct. Well, yeah, well, there you go. That's I think that's that's 2001. Thanks. Thank you for joining me, Caro. Yeah, this was super fun. <laughs> I'm glad you finally got to see it. It's, it's pretty amazing. You even had the DVD and you never got around to it. So there you go. Good. My mom bought it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for listening, listeners. I hope you guys had a good time. Again, I seriously recommend you uh, checking this movie out. And uh, if you feel like it, I'll, you know, help your mind out with whatever substances are legal and or acquirable in your particular countries. And yeah, just check it out. It's it's uh, it, you might not always want to see it twice, but it's a movie that you really should see once at least. And yeah. And how's the best character? That's definitely the takeaway. One of the first depictions of AI on screen. And he's a really, really great one. So as always, thank you guys. Uh, and if you enjoyed that, please uh, head on over to uh, ratemypodcast.com or anywhere else that you like to rate us and uh, drop us a rating. Can be good. I prefer if it was good, but if it's bad, so be it. I understand. And uh, if you enjoyed if, and you want more content, please uh, follow us on Twitter at RocketmanTFGC and on Instagram at RocketmanTFGC. Again, Carol, thanks for joining me. And uh, yeah, we'll see all of you guys next week. Thank you very much. Let me ask you something. Do you watch wrestling? Either way, I have a podcast I want you to check out. Smart and Friends is the wrestling podcast that's not just for wrestling fans. Sometimes we watch wrestling with content creators or emerging artists who don't watch wrestling. Other times we'll invite a wrestler to talk about their interesting projects outside the squared circle. Or maybe we'll do something else entirely, as long as we think wrestling fans and people outside of our fandom will get a kick out of it. Catch Smart and Friends from the Two Finger Guns Club wherever you catch your podcasts. This has been a Two Finger Guns Club production. Pew, pew.